About this movie, Dwayne Barge of The Hollywood Reporter says this pulsating political actioner should prove cathartic for mainstream viewers who yearn for a decisive, gutsy executive branch of government. Kenneth Turan of the LA Times calls it a piece of expertly crafted entertainment that gets the job done with skill and panache. And Letterboxd user Kristen Yonsu Kim says, I used to carry this VHS around in first slash second grade because it was my favorite movie, LOL. Can't believe I used to stand a president. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of Air Force One. Which one will it be? It's the Ruined Childhoods Podcast. Greetings, Starfighters, and welcome to Ruined Childhoods. Get off my podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Get on my pod. Get on <laughs> my pod. Uh, yeah, welcome to the show, everybody. You've been waiting all week for it. Here it is. I know I have. <laughs> I yeah, have been excited to talk of, about this. We're in, we're in the middle of our president our presidential movie month, so this is really exciting. We we yes. finally got around to doing Dave. So and here we are for Air Force One. And yes, and and um, just a little background. So John and I have talked about doing this before, but every time the idea of doing any type of president movie came up, as um, under the Trump administration, it just I did not want things to devolve into that, as they, you know. It, mere hints mere dips of the toes yeah. may happen but um you know i feel like my personal um indignance would were, was just it was too much i was like i can't bear to watch a movie that has a president that i root for so and and yeah feel like i want harrison ford to be my president and or dave you know or Dave, exactly. Um, not Bill Mitchell necessarily, but Dave. Yeah. Uh, so, well, <laughs> Bill all right. Mitchell. But, but here's, but here's the thing: is that you know, yes, Donald Trump is no longer the president. Our country still has a lot of problems that we've got to yes. work on. But the the current state of you know the people in charge is at least promising. There's. There's some hope. And um, actually, one one thing that I did not want to uh, I did not want to forget about here is uh, February. February is traditionally Black History Month. And yeah. I feel like there's no specific time of year. It's kind of like the whole Father's Day, Mother's Day thing. It's like I don't think believe that there's a specific time of year that we have to reserve for that. But because the focus and as a as a teacher, my focus has been on celebrating black excellence. And this podcast is really a perfect opportunity to do that. And what I would like to do over the course of, um, you know, uh, several episodes at least is celebrate some mm -hmm. uh, uh, celebrate some of the, uh, you know, really the people. People who've made sig really significant contributions to our our world that we discuss here of film, um, but you know maybe who have been overshadowed or yeah. have not been you know like I could 
I, I could spend an entire episode talking about Spike Lee and the films that he's made that I've personally felt impacted by. Sure. We could yeah. talk about we could talk tons about, uh, you know, Denzel Washington, Tyler Perry, so on and so forth. But I wanted to kind of and I wanted to bring in a, a little trivia and, and have a little fun mm. game. So I'm going to I got a little trivia question for for John here. And Ooh. let's see if he knows the answer. And perhaps if you a know the answer. pop quiz hot shot for moi. Yeah, pop quiz hot shot. Yeah. So um, we're celebrating black excellence and also in celebrating um, the memory of Alex Trebek in Jeopardy. We're going to do this in Jeopardy form. So, oh, okay. Answering in the form the, of a question. Got it. The category is celebrating black excellence. Okay. This revolutionary filmmaker released an album in 1968 titled Brer Soul. Ooh. I, who is Sidney Poitier? I am sorry. The answer is incorrect. The okay. answer is... Who is Melvin Van Peebles? Oh, okay. Melvin Van Peebles. So uh, if I may talk a bit about Melvin Van Peebles and then um, we're going to we're going to hit that clip of a, a song from the soundtrack to the the one studio film he directed, Watermelon Man, which I had always been interested in and finally watched and. Just to give you a little backstory, it was uh, Columbia Pictures had this uh, screenplay, this satirical screenplay about a a white man, a, a bigoted white man who overnight turns black. He wakes up and realizes he's black and Columbia Pictures wanted to make this film and they but they decided they needed to have a black director mm. to make it and melvin van peebles had uh, made a film independently and he had been you know he had made some he had gotten attention for you know his music he, you know he wasn't just a filmmaker um and also not just the father of mario van peebles i was gonna ask if there was a relation to mario van peebles there is father son Mario Van Peebles, director uh, and star of New Jack City, right. Posse, Panther, uh, um, you know, and co-star of Jaws: The Revenge. So, right, yeah, yeah, which we've talked about. But Melvin Van Peebles was hired to make the film, and it is a. I had never known it was a studio film. I always assumed it was independent. Hmm. And it wasn't until I did some research and I was thinking about this and was like, oh, Melvin Van Peebles. Like, I've heard a lot about him, but never really seen any of his work. And he. Uh, so Watermelon Man, uh, currently streaming on on Prime, he insisted that the star be, they wanted to cast a white star. Huh. As uh, um in the in the main role, and he convinced them that no, it needed to be a black star playing uh, the role of uh, Jeff. Oh man, I can't remember what the his last name is. First name is Jeff, and he. So he cast the uh, comic and actor Godfrey Godfrey Cambridge, okay, who a uh, big name in uh, stand up comedy at the time, and he is hilarious he's so fantastic and it's interesting because when he plays when he's playing 
the character as a white man in the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, it calls to mind things. Eddie Murphy's sketch on uh, Saturday Night Live, Black Like Me, the film True Identity, uh, which uh, um, co-starred Frank Langella and Lenny, I want to say Lenny Clark. Um, Dave's Frank Langella. I might be wrong about that. Yeah. And... But it, it was interesting because I was watching and I was like, he, he, like, they didn't put a whole lot of makeup. And of course, it's, it was 1970 this movie came out. Uh-huh. But he, and then when he turns out to be black, it's interesting because a lot of people, they're not like incredibly caught off guard. They're just like, oh, you, you, your complexion is darker than I remember. Uh-huh. It's an interesting commentary on, um, you know, it's, it's social commentary and it's like at the beginning of the movie, his wife is very interested in the news and there's all, you know, race riots going on. And the movie is uh, takes place in Los Angeles, I believe. Okay. And it so there's a lot it's on the news about race riots and and he doesn't want to hear any any of it. He just wants to pretend it's not going on. Mm hmm. And just and wants to ignore. Nope, nope, nope. Don't need any of that. And um, I think that, like that's kind of what prompts him. And it's I, I don't want to give too much of the film away. Okay. But he, it it gets to a point where it. I don't I don't know if I really knew what to expect. And when I was watching it, I wasn't necessarily trying to guess as to where it was going. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is, and I guess I have to be vague about this, but the author originally had the ending being that he um, that he wakes up and it was all a nightmare. Oh, Melvin Van Peebles wanted to change the ending and the writer Mm -hmm. really didn't. The writer was really against it. So Melvin Van Peebles said, well, I'll film both endings. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Except something happened, and um, that other that ending that the writer wanted just uh, didn't get shot, or oh, he said weird. he said something happened to the footage. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, wow, the ending that it does have is the ending that Van Peebles uh, wanted, which is it, it, it speaks volumes. And um, it, what I uh, what I have to play is a track of the soundtrack. You'll hear Melvin Van Peebles singing, and it's a song called "Love Is America" that that keeps coming up at various points during the film. Excuse me, buddy, but excuse me, lady, but you're fooling, ain't you? can I be? This ain't America, is it? Oh, Lord, where can I be? This ain't America, is it? No, this ain't America. You can't fool me. This here's the home of the sheriff. Not the land of the free. In America, folks don't run through the street. People. 
Wow, that's awesome. It's yeah, it's really something, and I highly recommend checking it out. To yeah, you know, I wonder if I, uh, and and clearly this is something that could just be. I, I wouldn't say coincidence, but you know, like a typical type of thing that would happen. But I wonder if there's any connection or influence, uh, at least in the title, to the Cheryl Dunyer film, the Water the Watermelon Woman which was 90s, I want to say, and um, mid-90s. And uh, Charles Dunier, uh, so I went to Temple University in Philly. Dan, you know this. Um, and Charles Dunier, uh, I believe, went there, but also taught there a little bit. And I do have memories of like uh, meeting her uh, on campus. And you know, the Watermelon Woman was definitely something that came up a lot. So I wonder if uh, Watermelon Man in in ways influenced the watermelon woman the themes well the plot is very different um but you never know i i'm sure it, if nothing else at least the the title because watermelon man is a is is a, you know quite a cult classic mm-hmm. although and i did read it was like somewhat successful and like i said before this is a, and I think of Columbia Pictures, and wasn't it Columbia that produced Head, the monkeys? Right, yeah. Columbia, yeah. I guess, doing some funky things at the time. Oh, really? Like, there's a lot of similar, like, the style. There are some moments when there's, like, color filters hmm. uh, popping up. And did Columbia also do the party? I don't remember. I, yeah, that I just, it just occurred to me because the party has some sequences that, uh, yeah, Dan, do you know of any, and it's okay if the answer is no, but do you know of any, like, books or anything that really talk about, like, the studio system, you know, the history of the studio system? Because I, I feel like it's kind of a little bit less the case now, but they definitely had their identities. Each one kind of had their own thing that they really had going on. Uh, and I'm not just talking about, you know, like... Oh, well, this is more of like the independent branch of right. Sony or whatever, right. Fox. But, but oh, uh, uh, Easy Rider is the other one uh, Columbia Easy Rider. Mm. did that. And so, yeah, who knows? During the, you know, during the late 60s, early 70s, Columbia might have been that place where uh, the, the counterculture go to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know Warner Brothers was traditionally known for like gritty, realistic crime dramas, which kind of you know remained the case i would say through the night i miss studios having their own identity by the way yeah it makes things really interesting when you see like oh that's who did that like not a person but an organization well and just like i know it's the way of the world now but it i i get frustrated when i see a movie and i have to get through like eight different like production graphics yeah like and well, I they got to get the money to make these things somehow. Well, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I mean, like, I get it. Well, but I, 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 though I, although I will say it's like, you know what you're in for when you see like A24 or like even yes, like legendary come up. Yeah. Legendary. Right. Absolutely. Things like well, that bad robot. Yeah. So on and so forth. Yeah. Right. And yeah, of course, those are tied to individuals. But you know what to expect from like if if it's a Blumhouse like horror movie or something, right? You know the the vibe that you're going to be getting. I guess yeah. I guess we're yeah. We are kind of 
getting getting to that rediscovering that type of identity yeah but it's with the smaller you know it's not the the big big names and I guess you have certain, and and I guess like those because I always think of actors that were associated with studios like Eddie Murphy and Paramount, Paramount. in the in the in the eighties, and yeah. uh, you know Bette Midler and Touchstone, <laughs> yeah, for some time. Yeah. Uh, so and I guess Timothy Chalamet and and A twenty four. Yeah, I mean, I I I think that A twenty four kind of is really bringing up the new generation Saoirse Ronan uh Florence Pugh Florence Pugh yeah I mean I I enjoy a lot of their work so but I mean I feel like they're also they go with you know the the interesting projects um maybe and maybe those are just more in the A24 category than others but anyway uh I want to get back to um, talking quickly about uh, Dave. I have a one more thing for Dave. Yeah. And then we can start getting into um, some some current things. But I have one more thing for Dave. Uh, we were talking about other actors that could have played the role aside from Kevin Klein, And I don't know how we didn't mention Steve Martin. I feel like he would have been a great Dave. Oh. Because you know that he can pull off the Bill Mitchell, the like the asshole version of the president. But he can certainly play off the like, you know, the empathetic, kind hearted, clever Dave Kovac. Steve Martin. And of course, like I I wouldn't trade anyone for Kevin Klein in this role. No, no. But yeah, Steve Martin would have been uh, an excellent choice. Yeah. And more so than the other choices that. that (laughs) And I have a one more thing from. Several episodes ago, you know, we were when, when we did our episode on Deep Impact and Armageddon, uh, we of course talked about other uh meteors coming towards Earth movies, and there is a new one that uh, I believe premiered at Sundance called How It Ends, and it's uh, a Zoe Lister Jones movie. And I'm just going to read the synopsis from Slash Film. So, of course, it has, you know, kind of a cheeky tone to it, but you can chalk that up to Slash Film's writer. A giant meteor is set to collide with Earth at 2 a.m. So in 30-something, Liza, Zoe Lister-Jones, wakes up on the last day of human history. She kicks off the morning by scarfing down a stack of pancakes. Uh, Liza technically lives alone, but she's always accompanied by a physical manifestation of her younger self a walking reminder of the innocence and optimism that she used to have before a string of bad relationships led her into a state of urban malaise. Today, all Liza wants to do is get super high and go to one last party. There's just one problem. She's all out of drugs. And they say that could easily be the setup for a classic stoner movie, but there are no hallucinogenic trips to be found here, or at least not for our protagonist. After an initial jaunt of uh, to acquire some drugs, the movie establishes that it's going to be about an entirely different kind of trip, a literal journey across Los Angeles, not only to make it to that night's party, but to visit friends and family in a last-minute attempt to clear Liza's conscience. Along the way, Liza and her younger self encounter strangers, acquaintances, old friends, ex-lovers, and more... Um, all of whom can actually see the younger self for the first time ever. So sounds kind of heady, kind of interesting. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, so I I definitely, as you can imagine by what we talked about on our, you know, Armageddon Deep Impact episode, it's like these other 
views of what would happen if the world was ending you know what people are doing so it's kind of sim- like uh, seeking a friend uh yeah so it seems kind of similar to seeking a friend for the end of the world um but you know just a, a different person's perspective yeah Sounds interesting. Well, I I look forward to checking that out. And yeah. uh, bef- before we go on, we do need to we have to pour one out for oh, yeah. a legend, Mister Christopher Plummer. Absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, Academy Award winner, but like just an actor who elevated everything that he was in up until from- the very end. Right, right. I mean, elevating things, uh, you know, stepping in for um, all the money in the world. Mm-hmm. Le- last minute, just a-, a couple of years ago. Yeah, and I don't know if you saw the movie, Dan. I did. I did and not. you wouldn't imagine that that's something that he just kind of, that he didn't have months to prepare for, you know? that right. You don't get the impression, like, it's... N- watching that movie is kind of like, it's an okay movie, but it's... It's good when you watch it thinking Christopher Plummer stepped into this last minute and he is killing it. And as Jay Paul Getty. Re- like also replaced like Kevin Spacey. So right. not not two actors that I would normally th- you know think are are interchangeable. But no. yeah. And uh, but Christopher Plummer Sound of Music uh Captain Von Trapp we yeah, we were talking earlier. Yep. And I I have a soft spot in my heart for his performance as the Reverend Jonathan Worley in (laughs) 1987's Dragnet. Uh, Yeah. Yes. When I say he elevates every project he's in, I I truly mean it. But also Inside Inside Man and The Insider, both movies where he gave excellent performances. Yeah. Uh, The list goes on and on. So, Uh, yeah, his his absence will be noticeable and will be, of course, greatly missed. The kind of person that you don't hear anybody saying anything bad about Christopher Plummer. You just know. In fact, it, uh, for those interested in hearing a, a great story about him, j- check out Russell Crowe's Twitter feed. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, just shared an amusing anecdote that um, shared an amusing anecdote that Christopher Plummer shared with him. So um, I'm not going to bother paraphrasing the paraphrasing of it. Yeah. Check it out on Russell Crowe's Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. Uh Dan, you ready to talk about Air Force One? Let's take off. <laughs> Jeez. After the U.S. and Russia team up to imprison a terrorist hell-bent on starting a new Cold War, a group of extremists hijack Air Force One with the help of the president's head secret service agent. What they don't count on is that President James Marshall is a Vietnam War vet who will stop at nothing to save his colleagues, his family, and his plane, but sticks to his word to never negotiate with terrorists. Back at the White House, the VP is pressured to invoke the 25th Amendment, but is also trying to save the president by submitting to their demands, releasing the evil Kazakhstani dictator from a Russian prison. But the president takes back his plane just in time to reverse the VP's order and have the general shot dead before he could get away. So, as you all probably know... Harrison Ford is President James Marshall. Gary Oldman is the head uh, hijacker. Uh, Igor uh, Korshnov. Korshnov? 
something like that. Uh, Glenn Close is the vice president, Catherine Bennett. Um, we have Wendy Crewson as first lady, Grace Marshall, Liesl Matthews, named for Liesl uh, in The Sound of Music as first daughter, Alice Marshall. Um, we have... Uh, Paul Gilfoyle as the White House Chief of Staff, Lloyd Shepard. William H. Macy is the 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 U.S. Air Force military aide to the president. And oh God, he's so good. Dean Stockwell yeah. is the Defense Secretary, Walter Dean. Oh my God, we have so many of these. So uh, Xander Berkeley is the is the mole for which, the hijackers. If you're like, I've seen that name before, but I can't place him. Terminator 2, he's the the foster dad. He's the John foster Connor's dad, foster yeah. dad. He's the kind of guy where when you see him, you're just like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning that I'm sure like he's a great, he's I'm sure he's a fine guy, but like, you know, the roles that he plays, he just has that look. Um, the, the cast list just, you know, it, I- it goes on. There's... I got a, there's someone who I need to point out who everyone has seen his face and you might not know his name, but look up Elia Baskin. If you watched, um, it, the Americans, he played, he was in oh, that yeah. played, uh, Yevgeny's, uh, or no, God, I'm confusing the other actor's character from, um, whatchamacallit, Homeland, which mm. I think he, he was in that as well. Home, uh, was, did a <laughs> season of, of Homeland. He is basically, he's like any movie where they have needed an additional Russian. There's like, there's whatever non-Russian actor they get to play the main character. Like he was in Moscow in the Hudson, on oh, the yeah. Hudson with, uh, you know, with Robin Williams. And I think yeah. Yakov Smirnoff was in that as well. But, of course. Um, El- <laughs> Elia Baskin you know him he's he's tall he's got that kind of um slim face uh and you know it's just kind of it's ah yes they needed him. right yeah and, and uh one other person i want to mention is philip baker hall who is uh the attorney general who i think has just like one scene really i'm told that you want my interpretation as to what the constitution says about the situation yes no and my understanding is that if the president is out of contact in a military situation, the secretary of defense is in charge as second in command. Yes, of course. Good, then that settles it. It doesn't settle it at all. The president is not merely out of contact. He is also under duress. His family is held hostage, possibly himself a hostage. It creates an incapacity to discharge the office under the 25th Amendment. Uh, surely just as if he'd had uh, a stroke. I think the president would dispute that any incapacity exists. It exists if a majority of the cabinet, including yourself, says it exists. The president may be alive, but he may not be the president. Can I tell you, great in everything. I can't see him in a movie without imagining Dennis Farina telling him to go have a cream soda. <laughs> I just think of Midnight Run. I just think of Midnight Run. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think of him mostly from his work in like the Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Oh, um, oh Magnolia. He's brilliant. Magnolia. He's amazing. And Boogie Nights. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's also in Hard Eight. So, yeah, definitely worked a lot with Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, yeah, just uh, a lot of really solid work there. Um, but a great, it's a great cast. Um, you know, you love to see William H. Macy in these, you know, these are these early William H. Macy roles. Um, another, this is Magnolia. He's like, uh, hot, hot off Fargo. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, I guess this is, but this is also that period, like we talked about with Armageddon where your, your studio summer blockbusters are, are adding some of these known 
character actors from Mm -hmm. who've been because William H. Macy, by the time he's in this, has been nominated for an Oscar for for Fargo. So, you know, he's he's known he's got that credibility. Gary Oldman, of course. Right. Gary Oldman. like, you know, he's had credibility since he started acting. Um, yeah. And it's a great, it, it's it's such a fantastic cast and they all do the right thing. Now, it, I mean, they do like, they they work for the achieved, the, or the goal that is in, that is intended by this movie. Yeah. And you know what? This is one of those movies where you you feel good watching it. It definitely when you when you're watching it now, the you know, the the CGI feels dated and things like that. But it's like it's okay because you the performances just make you feel good the way that. Oh, yeah. You know, Glenn Close plays her role as the VP is just like, hell yeah. And also it's like, you know, seeing a female VP in, you know, the 90s is, you know, (laughs) I ahead of its time, as we know Holly, exactly how Hollywood long ahead has, of its time. Hollywood has has always been ahead of the curve, but um, yeah. And, and what's interesting, and I don't did, were you aware that uh, Air Force One was not originally intended for Harrison Ford? It was intended for Kevin Costner. Jeez, oh, Kevin Costner. again, but he wanted to do the Postman, right? Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Which it you know worked out for everybody. He got to do the postman. Which I've never. Have you ever seen the postman? No, no. I've never seen it, but I have heard some. And I don't know if this is just a like you know, fill in the blank. You know, like really badly reviewed, poorly received movie from a while ago. You know, gets which sometimes that works out. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but with the postman. I've always been skeptical. The only reason I've ever wanted to watch it is because Tom Petty is in it. Oh, <laughs> and right. Just yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm interested, but uh, I don't know. I'm I'm a little curious. I'm glad that Kevin Costner did that so that Harrison Ford, uh, because I guess they were not going to carry the Jack Ryan series to the point where Jack Ryan mm-hmm. becomes president. So, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> try to find anybody who disagrees with the casting of Harrison Ford as the president for this movie. It was inevitable. It was it inevitable. It was inevitable. And I mean, everybody will always remember the famous line. Get off my plane. My plane. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just such a, a satisfying moment when he, you know, ties the rope around, uh, you know, Gary Oldman's neck and says that and kicks him off and snaps his neck. Oh, it's so good. And it's and also you're waiting. just like, you're waiting. Yeah. For, it's, it, you're waiting for it. You know, it's going to happen. And then it, it happens. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's really fascinating also to watch somebody who you, if you step your, into the world yourself, you, you know, it's the, you see the president killing people. Like, I mean, as we know, presidents, are responsible for a lot of deaths. Uh, they make decisions that are not always easy decisions, but not actually, you know, with their finger on the actual trigger. So right. it's really fascinating to watch that happen. And, and you know, to see this Vietnam War vet actually, yeah. like, you know, kick into his instincts and uh, kick some which, ass. Which the script sets that up nicely by having his commanding officer in Vietnam be, is he like chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Or You know, I don't he's, remember. He's in the, the room. He's in mm. the room where it happens. And 
so because he's the one who's saying like you know he was the he had the best instincts as a right, soldier right. and yeah yeah I, I just have a hard time keeping track of like what everyone's actual like position is right yeah there's a I lot just know, of people in this movie <laughs> yeah he's he's in he's in that room and when they're talking about like well if the president is on board then we definitely have to do the 25th amendment and he's like yeah. no 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 if he's in this situation he knows exactly what to do and then it's like Harrison yeah. Ford yeah, and it's, people. you know, it's really fascinating also to watch a movie where they talk so much about the 25th Amendment coming out off of this time in actual history where that conversation had been coming up a lot in the past few months. And, uh, you know, obviously a very different situation, but, you know, I feel like what they are talking about doing, you know, aligns with a lot of the things that you hear about the 25th Amendment. And, you know, the the VP just needs to be the final signature on it. And uh, it's kind of amazing because you get to really see the vice president as a person who doesn't want to, you know, really doesn't want to become president unless like she absolutely has to and she's like so hesitant to do it. It's like she clearly has, you know, the... I don't know the country and the the view of the presidency to remain in a high stance and you know people to not lose their minds if they see that this happens while the president is still you know in this situation right right and it's it's interesting because they really are talking about what circumstances could he be under? And and I think this was the, the conversation that really didn't happen in the open when all of the, the recent discussion of the 25th Amendment was going on. But I don't think this, like, discussion really happened in the news. But, like, what are all the different angles and reasons that would suggest that the president is acting under some type of duress? Right. That, you know, are we talking to the president and is he at gunpoint? Is his wife being held hostage? Like, what are all these things? Like, what is what else is at stake for him? And I think like the 25th Amendment in terms of recent history was discussed in terms of very it was very narrow. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a very narrow scope and it was like looking at one circumstance or once and not considering other, at at least that discussion wasn't being had had out in the open. Of course, none of these discussions in the movie are being had out in the open. They're all happening in that room. But it's really fascinating because you do have this you know, this storyline that's going on of like, what is the right thing to do in terms of, you know, who is in control and who should be in control. And, uh, you know, that's where you have these types of discussions. I'm going to play a clip really quickly uh, that are happening. I believe it's in the situation room. It's certainly not the situation room that we've seen in actual photographs. It's definitely much larger, but anyway, yeah, there's uh, a lot of doors. <laughs> yeah. Here's a, here's a, a, a clip with the VP. Maddock with a nuclear arsenal. I hate to say this, but 50 people is a small price to pay to stop that from happening. Even if one of them is the president? The presidency is bigger than any one man. Didn't they teach you that at Yale? Yeah, so it's... There's a definite... There's a big, like, struggle within the situation room to 
make something happen so that somebody there is in charge of the situation and right. you know just assuming that you know the, just trying to make the situation go away on air and force I, one well that or i don't know like i i guess um framing it and understanding the 25th amendment now differently than i did when i first saw this movie like at age 20 mm-hmm. um which is amazing because like now i feel like it, you know you have to be living under a rock to not know what the 25th amendment is yeah so um but dean stockwell's character while i certainly still fa- thought he was playing like kind of the you know the the politician the the power player who's yeah. trying to step up i felt like his reasoning was all I, it was kind of like i oh, can't that's hard to argue with and yeah it's and and there's one interesting example there's a um so there's a moment when when they finally are, are on the for on the ford on the phone with harrison ford on the phone yeah. with the president and um and he's talking to the vice president Mm-hmm. And he and it's like he te- he makes that one reference to if you give a mouse a cookie. Yeah. Here, look, let's just listen yeah. to that real quick. Yeah. Where's Bennett? Mr. President. We cannot release Reddick. They're going to shoot a hostage every half hour until we do. I don't want a plane full of dead people. Jim, they shot Jack Dougherty. Oh, Christ. Catherine, we can't give in to their demands. It won't end there. And if you die in that plane, does it end there? Catherine, we've got a job to do, whatever the cost. Mr. President, I... Catherine, if you give a mouse a cookie... He's gonna want a glass of milk. We gotta get this plane on the ground. I, I love that. What I love about that exchange is... It's not like a code, but it's definitely a conversation they've had before. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what really convinces her that, no, like he's he's in control. He's in command of his faculties. Sure, yes, but also reminding her that, you know, submitting to their demands is really opening up a can of worms because right. it's not it's not like the problem goes away. The problem just gets insane. Uh, because yeah. like we said, you know, if Raddick gets released, then this terrorist organization rises and they initiate, like I was saying in the synopsis, like a new cold war. Well, and it also, it sets a precedence when you don't, yeah. uh, when there's not consequences, it, it sets a precedence. It makes the country also look weak and, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's, it, it's a really smart movie for like a dumb action movie for what's essentially die hard on a plane well yeah and i think part of it comes down to i I think that that is something that i've always enjoyed about uh wolfgang peterson's films and you know thinking about outbreak especially Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the context of a uh a pandemic here um, the movie, the movie Outbreak, for some reason, was like it, like in the top streaming movies yeah. during the pandemic. I didn't get that. That's Last a movie thing I want to watch right now. 
But it is for something that's kind of, you know, it's a gimmicky thriller. In fact, uh, Harrison Ford was supposed to be, he wanted Harrison Ford. And, um, you know, of course, when you can't get Harrison Ford, you call Dustin Hoffman. Same thing. Yeah. Exactly. Ford Hoffman, whatever. Hoffman should have been Indiana Jones, but that's no. (laughs) That would have been, I mean, now I really want to see it. But, uh, but yeah, it is a really, but then again, you know, John Die Hard is a smart action movie. (laughs) Oh yeah, totally. Absolutely. But it's like, there's, there's so much going on in this one where it's like, I feel like that you give him out a cookie thing is a a really brilliant, you know, two second moment that really explains so much about why they're doing what they're doing. And especially Glenn Close's character. It's a great touch. Um, and actually speaking of Glenn Close's character, but also some of the other, uh, Smaller performances in this movie that that stood out to me. Uh, wh- of course, the the president has the nuclear code. The nuclear football is right. is on the plane, and one of my f- favorite walk in moments. And we'll we'll get to the others shortly. But I want to compliment Albert Owens, who played the, the character only identified as football colonel. And <laughs> I, I believe I think you have that that clip. If you would be so kind as to play his his line. How would they get the weapons on board the plane? There's no way to get weapons aboard Air Force One. It's impossible. Well, there are enough weapons already on board to take Panama. But who has access to them? You think someone on the plane helped them? What if somebody did and they're still on the plane? Who do they trust up there? Who do we trust? Madam Vice President, Mr. Secretary, all compromised nuclear launch codes have been canceled. New codes are active. Yeah. When I, when he comes in and says that, I imagine him like waiting for his cue. I imagine him like in the hotel room the night before practicing that line, doing the whole entrance. (laughs) And I imagine him just like, oh God, yes, you your own screen with Glenn motherfucking close. This is your moment, man. You are a star. Albert Owens, this is your moment. Yes. (laughs) And then Madam Vice President, I, he, and it was, it was great. It, it, it struck me now. Another one of my, my, um, my favorite performances, unsung heroes of this movie, um, goes by the name of Mr. Willard E. Pugh. That's not his character in the movie. That that's his actual name. And Willard E. E. Pugh, I forget what his title is, but his role mainly consists of running into the situation room and announcing something. Yeah, I'm going to play a clip. This is uh, a few different moments of him running into the situation room, and you're going to hear each one begins with a tone, so you know that there's a difference between them. It's Air Force One. They want to talk to the Vice President. Madam Vice President. Get Air Force One on the line. We just got an intercept. The president called Petrov. He's out of breath. Release Radic. Radic is dead. Yes! It's the president. We have retaken the plane. And I love Love that he gets that moment. We have retaken. It's like such a. It's all that running in was. And imagine how many takes they did. He's great. He. and I, I was thinking, it, you know, we'll we'll get to this part of the conversation, but I, I would, I wish that they had, and I guess I don't, I wouldn't do this in a remake, but I would have loved to have seen like the cast of Veep doing something like uh-huh. this, and Sam Richardson doing that. Oh, oh my God! 
Yes. Richard Split. Richard T. Split. I love, I love that character so much. And I love him as that character. And I was just like, oh, God, I wish that was Richard doing that. Yeah. So just real quick, I'm looking at his filmography. And it's mostly things that I've never heard of before, with the exception of uh, Toy Soldiers and The Color Purple. Uh, yeah. Robocop 2 as well. Uh, uh-huh. But a lot of stuff that I just haven't mm-hmm. heard of. Um, but yeah, Willard Pugh. Willard Pugh as the White House communications officer caught my caught my eye on this viewing of Air Force. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's such a a fun role to play. You're always just running into the room. Well, I also I think about I think about these roles and I think about actors who are I think about the type of actors who are going to be playing these roles and how much it means. It's like this is your like. I am in this, I have this moment in this huge movie and I'm on screen with Glenn Close, Dean Stockwell, yeah. and, you know, whoever else is in there, Philip Baker Hall, if he's, if it's that if, scene. If it's that scene, yeah. <laughs> if it's that scene, yeah. So I, I, it's things like that that really made me, or showed me why I appreciate this movie and why it's a movie that has has always been a, a positive, like a movie that I think I, I'm frequently interested in watching. If someone mm-hmm. suggests it, I'm less likely to say no. Yeah, I, this movie's great. I, no complaints. And it, what's and what's funny is you know you've got Gary Oldman in there, but I I think about you know the the notes I took. I'm like I did not. I don't think I wrote anything down about. Gary Oldman, who's fantastic. He, yeah, he's there to do a job and he does it well. Uh, he's menacing as Gary Oldman definitely can do. Um, and there's kind of, there's the scenes where he has the, uh, the first lady and the first daughter and you're just, it it just kind of like makes your blood curdle a little bit just to think about like what kind of person this guy is. And it's just like, it's the kind of thing that Gary Oldman can really, really do. He is teeter. It is like teetering on the edge of, I mean, it's, it's predatory to begin with, but it is really on the edge of, of getting bad. And yeah. Gary Oldman is so good at implying that. And he, I mean, he's, he's just, he's a master. Yeah. And I mean, if you're thinking about this era you know, this is really the era of Gary Oldman as the amazing bad guy. You know, you have the professional, you have true yeah, romance, the, the fifth uh, element, the well, fifth the, element, the same year, same. Oh, so the same summer. Year. Uh, I mean, like two the, months earlier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of people now would think of him from, I don't know, maybe the Batman movies or I don't know, The Darkest Hour or something like that. But like, I don't know. Uh, or Mank, Wait, but like, Mank, you know, yeah. during this era of the 90s, man, he was just like the go-to bad guy. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and awesome as murder, know, murder in the Sid first. And Sid and Nancy. Oh, oh just he's like incredible in Sid and Nancy. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, his performance in true romance, I think, is just next level. It, yeah. No one else, no one else could, you could not have replaced him, not even with Christopher Plummer. No, <laughs> not for all the money in the world. <laughs> so, uh, 
Dan, do you remember your first time seeing Air Force One? You said you would have been around 20. I mean, I, I'm i almost positive I saw it at the Lowe's in Mountainside, New Jersey. Okay. Just and... kind of tracks with your age and what you would have been doing at that time. Oh, yeah. Probably went with, you know, with... The you know, usual Dave cast DeVito, of Dave Lippman, Paul, Tony, you know, hey, gotcha. what's up, guys? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 we probably went, like, probably went one night after, like, working at camp. We used to, like, go to movies. Sometimes they would, you know, go to late movies or I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we went on the weekend. Who knows? But, yeah, I would have seen it. I would have. That's how I would have seen it. Those are the circumstances. Nothing, mm-hmm. you know, um out of the ordinary, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we all enjoyed it. <laughs> I know I did. Yeah. I don't know if this is one that I saw in the theater. I feel like it must've yeah. been a on TV or a rental type of situation. I just don't really remember seeing it in a theater, but um, I, I don't know. It, it's one of those where, and I think about this so much. I know I've talked about this before, but you know, watching these movies at home on like a really good TV with surround sound. And, you know, it's, I'm watching movies now in a way that I had never seen them before. Cause I would have seen it, you know, pan and scan and on, uh, you know, even if oh. it was a good TV, then it would have still been like leagues been beneath. Yeah. CRT TV. Now, um, May may I tangent a moment because you mentioned pan and scan, and this sure. is something. This is something for the VHS nerds out there. But when I hear Columbia Pictures and pan and scan, I I I get jittery because Columbia Home Video had by far the worst pan and scan. I remember Ghostbusters. It, the pan and scan was like pan and scan was like much smoother in. For some reason, for and then for some reason, Columbia Home Video Pan and Scan. Like I think, actually, League of Their Own is one where yeah. it's so terrible. I could, I could not watch that in Pan and Scan. <laughs> and it just, it was so like very just kind of jittery. It was very computerized movement, and it was like, oh, they're not even, they're not even trying to make this look good. And what studio was uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure? Warner. That was Warner. That one had a, I remember a particularly bad pan and scan. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think about watching these movies the way that I watched them when not Air Force One, but movies that we talk about or movies that I watch now that I grew up watching on VHS on my like 13 inch TV and were still great and i think about how mm-hmm. i watch movies now and like well, hey that was I'm... how i watched fargo yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> well a great movie is a great movie no matter what what the size of the screen yeah. is and i you also get close and... enough well and that was letterboxed yeah <laughs> it so... was letterboxed yeah i, mean, I Actually, didn't care just think about it that would be great knuckle tattoos pan ampersand scan <laughs> Yeah, I, I yeah, want I'm you to doing meet something my, visual right now. And... I want you to meet my, you know, uh, my posse, pan and skin. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to know which way to look. I don't know. <laughs> You're not going to have to choose. I don't Tell know. Tell you what, it's not going to be smooth. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, so, boy. Oh, uh, yeah. Off my plane. Sorry, I just want to do that one more time. Get off so, my... I'm always every... And you know what? This is what, what another thing that I thought was... And I don't know if Harrison Ford is is too old. I don't think so. He might be the right age. I would love to see Harrison Ford play Vince McMahon. Because I... Huh. When, and uh, for the wrestling nerds out there, I know you're listening. At least you, Ray. Uh, and I think about... Up, I, I think about... Vince McMahon, get off my plane. You're fired. And I think Harrison Ford would be a great screen Vince McMahon. Yeah, I, I mean, lately in his career, I mean, of course, you have the, you know, the latest Star Wars movies. Uh, well, the first one, Force Awakens. Uh, and he was and he, of course, did that dog movie. And then I... Uh, <laughs> Call of the Wild. Call of the Wild. He also did, um, he was a voice of a dog in Secret Life of Pets 2, which he was very good right. in. So it's like, he's, I don't know. I he's think he's not putting his heart into it as, as all that much. Honestly, but. no. And, and, and I actually think that Air Force One was kind of a, a benchmark in, in his career. I, I think after Air Force One, it was more of kind of the, I don't want to say grumpy old Harrison Ford, but I'm going to say <laughs> grumpy old Harrison Ford. Uh, okay. I, I just, I'm thinking of, I mean, Six Days, Seven Nights was the one he did with Anne right. H. Anne H., yeah. And then it was like, he did one with Josh Hartnett, uh, or Kristen Scott Thomas, Random Hearts. Oh, Josh right. Hartnett was H Hollywood Homicide. Hollywood Homicide, yeah. Which, yeah. these were all these not, not so good movies. Yeah. And, I kind of feel like a lot of the times he doesn't want to be there. Um, yeah. You get that impression sometimes in Air Force One, but then other times you're just like, no, he's, he's no. committing. In Air Force One, because he's also, Harrison, Air Force One, I think, marked the last time we really saw the classic Harrison Ford, like, I'm in trouble and I don't have a lot of time to figure out what to do face. Yeah, yeah. But I, I'm thinking more of like you don't see that like Indiana Jones smirk all that much. The like smirk, the, yeah. the genuine smirk uh that you would get in like Raiders of Lost Ark, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade. Last Crusade, uh, yeah. You know what? I'm I'm gonna go ahead and play the uh, a clip from the speech that he gives at the beginning of the movie, oh, which I feel I, like is just such an awesome speech. I just want to give a little bit of that. Yes. Real peace. It's not just the absence of conflict, it's the presence of justice. Tonight, I come to you with a pledge to change America's policy. Never again will I allow our political self-interest to deter us from doing what we know to be morally right. Atrocity and terror are not political weapons. And to those who would use them, your day is over. We will never negotiate. We will no longer tolerate and we will no longer be afraid. I just love it. It's your turn to be afraid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's just great. It sets it up. It, it Yes. It's a fantastic speech. It's the type of leadership. And it's not every president in, not every fictional president in movies is, you know, is supposed to be a, a great president. Um, but I think Harrison, and what I love, I don't think they ever specify like his 
political party. It does not come up. It is not. No. Do they? No, no, I don't. No. I don't think oh, so. Oh, that oh. doesn't come up in most of these movies. I mean, I it doesn't come up in Dave. Um, although you can assume that he's Republican. Well, not Dave, but Bill Mitchell's Mitchell. Republican. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But American president seems pretty democratic to me. He's a Democrat. Yeah. That's a Democrat. You know, Aaron Sorkin. It's yeah. Gonna I, be a Democrat. Yeah. But I, then again, I don't know if they, if they say it or if it's just like, you know, he's a Democrat. <laughs> I think it's mostly a, you know, type of situation. With this, it's hard to say, uh, but I don't think that it really matters. No. Yeah. Though, I would want to say independent. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I you know, it's uh, not counting the Sarah Palin situation, but I feel like uh, having a female running mate is more likely to put you into the Democratic category, uh, especially in the 90s. Um, well, the I believe the only and, f- female, well, female vice presidential candidate in 1988, Geraldine Ferraro, who ran oh, yeah. with Walter Mondale on the mm-hmm. on the uh, Democratic ticket. Yeah. Or, so was that no, no, 84, 84. Sorry. Right. And so, I, I mean, if you had to guess, uh, you know, it's, it's just, who knows? They, they don't say. I think that it's intentionally not specified. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? That, it doesn't matter, but for shits and giggles. I want it. This is getting us into a really like sticky territory. My feeling is that eh. actively, you know, taking so many steps to stay out of a war uh leads me to believe democratic um i mean military experience is, is kind of irrelevant yeah i i would say though his speech is and while it's you know while it's very altruistic he is really kind of saying like fuck you we're coming for you and it's your turn to be like it's some pretty i i mean okay you know what obama i i i could have seen taking that taking that, that tone. tone yeah i could have seen him i like it if if 9-11 had happened uh you Under know on obama watch, or, yeah. i mean like you know i feel like you could probably i think you could probably find him somewhere taking that that tone but I think in terms of just like the U.S. military is coming for you no matter where you are. I I don't know. I think it is. Uh, I don't know. I would like to. And I would also like to believe that, you know, even if it has is in, you know, the movies that that there's a, you know. That that's the Republican president. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm looking up to see if there's anything written online about that. But I mean, I'm just not look. Finding he anything. would have left. He would have left the Republican Party. I'm sure. But if if his uh, what's his name, Marshall James Marshall James Marshall. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if James Marshall, you know, was a Republican, and in in our universe, in the, in real life. Uh, I think he would have definitely left the party. I, I think even you know long before 
now. <laughs> so here's here's something interesting. There was a James Marshall who served as postmaster general under Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, he was the postman. Uh, who was and he was a Republican. This is of course not the uh, uh, the James Marshall we talk about in this, but it leads me to uh, to talking about my idea of how we are going to bring this back. Oh, segue! Awesome. So that James Marshall was Postmaster General. If you remember, there's a scene in Air Force One where the president is on Air Force One and he's trying to send a fax to the Situation Room, and there's somebody on board who, uh, you know, just a staffer who tell shows him how he can use a fax machine because even though the phone lines are down, the fax lines operate on a different signal. So. He says to her, if this works, I'm going to make you Postmaster General. So, in my sequel, she has become Postmaster General and risen up and has become more active politically, and now she is president. It's been a while. I forget her. I don't even know if she has a name in this movie. I don't even know what her position was. But he said to her, if this works, I'm going to make you Postmaster General. So this goes down and she's in a position where there is, I mean, maybe this is a, you know, she's in the motorcade and the, uh, you know, there's somebody in there who's a some sort of traitor and maybe is uh, a radic loyalist who is, you know, trying to bring back Radic's agenda or whatever. And it's it's essentially Air Force One inside the motorcade or something. And it, it, rather than uh, sitting back and doing nothing, she thinks about her time with James Marshall and decides to kick some ass. What's up? So she, her name, by the way, is uh, Messiri. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Freeman who also appeared in The Flintstones and Vampire okay. in Brooklyn. And her character is listed as future Postmaster General. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so that, that, that could that be the title just, of the movie. <laughs> that moment just stuck out to me. Uh, and I really loved it. Uh, there's a great moment when the fax goes through and he like gives her a kiss on the cheek and he's like so jazzed. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, yeah, Harrison Ford is feeling this moment. Like, yeah, I loved yeah. that. And uh, she just was extremely likable. And uh, I'm just like, I want to watch that movie where she, you know, has become this and rises through the ranks and eventually... I mean, maybe if even if she's not the president, but maybe she's like I uh, high enough up that she's in the motorcade. So yeah, it's Air Force One in a motor in a motorcade, which is essentially Die Hard in a motorcade. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> die Die Hard in a motorcade. And I'm sorry because Wolfgang Peterson also directed In the Line of Fire. I just keep picturing right. Clint Eastwood chugging along alongside. Oh my God, Clint Eastwood the, uh, can stay out of this one. Yeah, no. Well, yeah, Clint, I don't I think Clint Eastwood is yeah. Done. Um How about no, you? He's still working. Uh, you know, I I struggled I struggled with this one. Yeah, I mean, clearly mine wasn't a like serious thing that I think would ever happen. <laughs> uh it was more for the fun of it because this is such a great like, you know, exists in its own little bubble kind of movie. 
Yeah, no, you definitely came up with you. You got something that that I didn't. Um, what one thing that I was, uh, one thing that that I was considering, and I just need to look something up is, and this is, I I feel like I'm I'm repeating myself because I think I had said the uh, said this with with Dave, but. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I was thinking about when presidents used to do it, like the the trains, like the whistle stop oh, trains, uh-huh. like 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 tr- oh Truman, Truman was was the one who who did it. So what if what if Truman's train got taken over by <laughs> <laughs> who would play I don't Truman? Know, a, who, who would play? A, I don't know Gary Sinise. <laughs> like he's done it before. That is true. Um, man yeah so i'm like <laughs> yeah what i uh, i mean who else could play oh matthew mcconaughey you just made me think of there oh. for some reason yeah. yeah uh you know let's let's put him in this as as truman and you know what if truman has to then you know i don't know get get off right. my train <laughs> yeah so this is one of those like you know retconning uh, uh actual nonfiction moments in time to fit a narrative. And uh, it's like an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter, but it's Harry Truman doing air force one. And it's, Oh, so it's post it's post world war two. Cause that happened in 1948. So Mm -hmm. it could be, it could be a Nazi. It could be a Nazi. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. I think that, I, I mean, I always like the idea of doing things that are set I guess like before the nineties, because then you don't have things like cell phones and the internet. Um, yeah. And, like communication is way harder. So that always makes things more interesting. It's like under siege too. It could be like under siege too. dark territory, baby without all, but it's all dark that, territory. Yeah. And you, you, so you got Harry Truman and he's got to take on, or what if it's a Mussolini loyalist like Oscar Isaac? That's really interesting because I feel like we get a lot of just like, you know, Hitler loyalist Nazis, but you don't yeah. really get as many like Mussolini uh, loyalists. Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah. So let's like, you know, get get a, a Mussolini, uh, you know, loyalist, someone who can who can do that. And and they yeah. they they take the train and uh I don't know. Truman fights, has to fight his way out. Mm-hmm. Who helps him out? I don't know. Who else is on the train? I don't know. I'm picturing Jonathan Banks. Uh, I don't know who he plays, but he's in there. Jonathan Banks should definitely be in it. I don't. Um, <laughs> I know nothing more about the whistle stop. I mean, now I'm more interested. Now that we're talking about it, I'm. I mean, I just thought of this. I. <laughs> No, I love it. <laughs> I, I, like honestly, I am pull. I am pulling this out of my ass right now. Yeah, and uh, I'm now really interested. Jonathan Banks needs to. Would he be? Would he be the traitor, or would he be a good guy? I think he'd be a good guy. I feel like he deserves to be the good guy. Yeah, he's so, always been the bad guy. At least in anything yeah, I can well, think of him in. I including feel like under breaking... siege too, dark territory. He's one oh, of the train hijackers. I just forgot. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Maybe he's I don't know. Oklahoma Governor Roy Turner. 
Yeah, sure. Done. Why Love not? It. I have no idea. I yeah. honestly just scrolled and pointed and, and yeah. looked. I'm being totally transparent with y'all right now. Yeah. Well, but before we wrap up, I wanted to bring up one other thing is that, you know, this is one of those movies that I uh, has just become like a pop culture phenomenon, including the get off my plane line. And I want to play a quick get clip. off my plane. Get off my plane. Did I say train? I feel like I might have said train. <laughs> You, but get you off see, my train. Yeah, you, you see. <laughs> oh. So uh, yeah, I'm I just wanted that. I wanted to play a clip from uh, the Family Guy that uh, has quite the reference to Air Force One. Of course, it does. Whoa, is that Harrison Ford? Yeah, it said in the brochure that he assists with all the jumps. Get off my plane! Get off my plane! Get off my plane! Oh look, he even brought Callista Flockhart with him. Uh, Peter, I think that's just a piece of paper. So that's just from uh, a, a scene where they're going skydiving. Um, so, I, I mean, Why not? I don't think I would ever skydive, but if there was Harrison Ford on there that would throw me off after saying get off my plane, I nope. would 5% more consider it. Nope. But th- that means a total of 5%. Yeah, no, that, <laughs> I don't know. My percentage is like in the negative yeah. on that, so... So if it was if works. it gave you five percent more, then maybe it would bring you up to like a zero percent. Not even. <laughs> not even. Less than zero, which is not no. our next movie. It is not our next movie. But tell everyone what our next movie is. Our next movie. So we're getting out of the nineties here. We are going back to nineteen seventy-two. Joseph Sargent's film, The Man, starring yeah. James Earl Jones as. A president who becomes president through a, I don't know, random set of circumstances. I have not watched it yet, but he ascends from a like cabinet position to the presidency. It's like a designated survivor situation. I I think without the Capitol blowing up, which <laughs> uh, that's yeah. that just is mm, that doesn't play anymore. Yeah, well, I'm excited to watch the man. Um, I've never seen it before. I believe it's just on YouTube. Yeah, I've never I, I've never seen it, but that's where we're finding it. And, you know, if for some reason we can't find it, we'll surprise you. Yeah, we'll <laughs> figure something episode. out. Yeah, yes. uh, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, I mean, James Earl Jones, I don't know if he's really come up in anything that we've covered so far, um, but clearly no. just like such an iconic, iconic actor. And, and you uh, talk about... And and cinema being ahead of the curve, he's the the first black president in this film, and yeah. I believe he is the first black president to be depicted on film. Oh, that wouldn't be surprising. I mean, we've covered black presidents in the past with deep impact, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it, it's cool that in 1972 this was something that was coming up. So I'm really curious to see how they explore that, and uh, yeah, I'm excited, Dan. And, Anxious uh, to talk about it. Yeah, Anxious to talk sure. about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dan, as you are getting thrown off Air Force One, I wish you a good journey. Good journey. Now get off of my podcast. Get off my plane. Get off my plane. Get off my plane.
my plane. Get off my plane, plane, plane. Get off my plane. Get off my plane. Get off my plane. President of the United States.